The number of responsibilities and opportunities involved when starting a business or becoming a leader within an organization can overwhelm the best of us. It certainly overwhelms David and Matthew. Join the two hosts as they interview successful leaders about their journey to leadership, including victories, failures, and realizations. This is Like It's Your Job, a podcast from TSG Publishing. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Like It's Your Job, a business-focused podcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, founders, and those that aspire to those roles. I'm one of your hosts, Matt Shields. I'm your other host, David Shields. And we have a great guest on the show for you today, Milithia Campbell-Tuggle. She is the owner and president of Robin Steel LLC. And we're going to be talking about how to form strategic partnerships that set your business up for success. And this is really important across all sizes of business, small to large enterprises. And the great news is Malithia has examples for all businesses. She is an astute entrepreneur, startup advisor, and expert negotiator who spent 15 years in executive leadership roles at Microsoft, where she formed numerous strategic partnerships, resulting in pivotal and pioneering deals that helped position Microsoft as the preferred platform for the first-rate advertisers and publishers. Malithia's leadership development training in the corporate world, combined with her insightful business perspectives, prepared her for the startup process. And she is now the owner and president of Robin Steele, a mobility solutions company that specializes in pedestrian safety and wayfinding. Malithia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Great, great to have you on. So. Tell us a little bit you know, more about your background, about your experience, and why you wanted to talk about strategic partnerships on the show today. Well, my background starts at the University of Texas at Arlington. I graduated with a degree in finance, and I was very, very fortunate to be among the five college graduates hired into the first financial leadership development program for Lockheed Martin Tactical Aircraft Systems. So everybody in this program was paired with a senior manager or a corporate vice president to rotate through various jobs that were really meant to groom us for executive leadership positions. The first job that I had at Lockheed Martin was to be a negotiator for the F-16 fighter program. And that's where I discovered my love for negotiation. It was an absolute perfect fit for me. I was really excelling in that role and they never rotated me again. So that's when I knew that I was really meant to be a negotiator. So Microsoft Game Studios came along and they actually hired me before I even completed the program. I was hired for a project accounting role just as Xbox was being developed. So I moved from Arlington, Texas to rainy Redmond, Washington, where Microsoft's corporate headquarters is located. And despite being in the accounting role, I started negotiating deals with probably within just a few months because that's really what the organization needed at the time. So keep in mind that Xbox was really just a whisper, Matt, at that time. We were building an entire business unit to support it. And the job made the biggest difference in my career. That's where I really sparked my passion for entrepreneurship. And I gained tremendous confidence in being able to structure pretty much any type of strategic partnership. The bulk of my job at the time was putting together deals for Xbox. And the benefit was that all of these different deal types that we were working on were brand new because Xbox had never existed before. So these were first of kind deals for Microsoft in the entertainment field. I love the way you put that, that it's a benefit. Some people may see that as a challenge, right? Because it's a whiteboard. How do I think about structuring this? What are the terms of the opportunity going to look like? 
you know, that that presents its own unique set of challenges in and of itself. There's no playbook for the partnership. Well, that's true. It was challenging for sure. Um, you know, Microsoft has a habit of dropping people into a role and challenging you to figure it out. And fortunately for me, that's exactly how I like to work. So I bought a licensing book, a licensing one-on-one, and um, I started doing research and meeting with different companies. And um, I just figured my way around the business. And that was the benefit for me and just learning how to be an entrepreneur with a large corporate backing. When I was at Microsoft, I had an opportunity to do just a ton of exciting and cool things. Um, Xbox was the newest and sexiest development for Microsoft at the time. Um, as we were just talking with Taylor, we had so many cool projects in development like Halo, and we had the blessings and the funding from Bill Gates and everyone at his level to just make it great. So the last thing I'll mention about how I got started was the management I worked for. And I mentioned it because I think that it was really pivotal, but within my career. So Shane Kim hired me. He was the head of business development for Microsoft Games Division at the time. And he reported directly to Ed Freeze. And eventually Shane went on to run the Games Division. And he was probably up until 2019, I think that he was the interim CEO for GameStop. So he's very accomplished and He's still very active in the entertainment industry. And so when I worked for him and sitting across the hall from from Ed and from Shane, I had, you know, an opportunity to be a part of a lot of executive level discussions and decision making, one of which was starting that consumer products group for the Xbox division. And that's when I was just telling Taylor that we had the you know, the chance to go and build the licensing portfolios for Xbox. We were negotiating strategic partnership agreements to raise brand awareness for Xbox and all of the first party games, accessing new customers and just trying to generate incremental revenue. So I did that for about eight years, Matt. I was invited by Joe Michaels, one of my favorite people on the planet to join Microsoft Online Services. And that's where I led business development for MSN Entertainment. That was equally exciting. And um, I did that for another eight years or so. That's excellent experience. Um, thank you, Malithio. Tell us, uh, I'm curious, just to hear a little bit more about this. If you had to pick one, there's probably many, but if you had to pick one thing that your excellent kind of mentors and managers did to make sure you succeeded in your role, what would you pick? They empowered me to make decisions and to structure the deal types in a way that I thought was most appropriate. And that's one thing that I give tremendous credit to Microsoft for. They were empowering. They gave visibility. They really encouraged you to be a self thinker. And, you know, just by doing that, they really made all of us entrepreneurs in the business development team. When I was working for Joe, he immediately put me in charge of business development for all of the entertainment properties in MSN. So I was running TV, movies, music, um, licensing content in rather than licensing content out like I did at Xbox. But he also empowered me to think through what are some new business opportunities that we should be thinking about given our growth goals for the audience? How do we want to diversify the Microsoft audience and, you know, bring a new demographic profiles to it, new psychographic profiles? to it. So I was empowered to start new businesses. And that really set me up for starting my own company because I had to look at it from, you know, beginning to end, just like I have to do with Robin Steele. Well, and, you know, our theme today, obviously, is identifying and utilizing strategic partnerships. And there's no way that you can uh, have a mandate from management to, from your boss or your company to go develop those partnerships without a kind of a, a, a mutual trust 
that's bestowed. And it sounds like you got that uh, a lot of confidence from uh, the people that you worked with. Uh, definitely. I got that. And one of the one of the measurements for our performance was how we performed as a trusted strategic advisor for Microsoft. So demonstrating trust and integrity, you know, being empowered to make decisions. Those were all of the things that they were looking for, especially in people like myself who were being groomed for leadership, even within Microsoft. Mm hmm. Well, uh, moving on to your quote, which I love, I think it's exactly in line with this theme, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I, um, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, but your quote is, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. Edward Everett Hale. And I can see the themes from that uh, from that quote in uh, that that sort of primary thing for success that you described. Tell us a little bit about what that quote means to you. For me, this quote is like an acknowledgement of my power. It really motivates me and it inspires me, David. I feel significant when I read it. I feel a sense of gratitude and I almost feel a sense of obligation just for the gift of being one who is capable. You know, I think I'm capable of doing positive things to create positive change. I think I'm capable of doing things to help improve the lives of other people. And there are so many negative things happening in the world right now. And I truly believe that some of the most simple acts of kindness can make a difference. You could probably just greet someone today and change the outcome of their day. Maybe hold the door open for somebody and possibly just diminish any negative stereotypes that they might have in their mind before. And one of the things that I really enjoy doing, I'm a tremendous believer in mentoring children. I think that it can change the path for their life and maybe even generations to follow. So doing something for somebody doesn't have to be monetary. I think that that is a holdup for a lot of people who look to the wealthy and look to philanthropists and think, I can't do anything. And we're not equal by that measure, but we're certainly equal in time. So by helping children, time is probably the most valuable thing that I can give. So I love to do it. And professionally, that quote inspires me because it just encourages me to make progress to my goals one step at a time. That's excellent. It certainly is this is a podcast for business owners and entrepreneurs. And, at, you know, at least for me, uh, in my own kind of business ownership and entrepreneurship journey, and what I see regularly is um, you can appreciate the amount of effort and work and what's at stake in your role. And that intimidation can be a, a, a pretty serious roadblock. Uh, and what I like about this quote is, you know, it says, uh, keep moving forward one step at a time. Do what you can to find your priorities and execute on those priorities. And so I, I can uh, I can really appreciate that. It, it brings everything that you've said so far uh, into life. Well, I appreciate that. And I think one of the, another takeaway from that quote, David, is really just do something, right? It's like mm -hmm. we can overanalyze things. We can sit in our offices. I'm guilty of it as well. And I'm continuously thinking through the business strategy for Robin Still. There's so many other things that I need to do day to day. So I find that for businesses, especially startups, just write down a few things that you want to accomplish every day. At night, sometimes I end my night by writing five things that I need to accomplish the next day. That was a habit that I started at Microsoft and I still do it today. So when I wake up in the next morning, I don't spend time, you know, spinning my wheels thinking about what am I going to accomplish today? I can start on action item number one. And I know at least if I get through that list, 
um, then I've accomplished the goals that I've set out. And I don't allow myself to be distracted by other things until I've accomplished those five things. And that's a, you know, that's a common theme between business leaders and entrepreneurs in that, you know, action is better than inaction, even if it leads to failure, there's lessons in failure. Um, and ensure that, you know, you, you do your best to mitigate risk. I'm not saying, you know, just go wantonly acting, right? There has to be a plan behind it, but, but action is always, always better than inaction. Even if the inaction, you know, the action is not to make a move, right? You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait a few days, right? That is in and of itself a deliberate action. Uh, so yeah, I, I really, really love that quote. So Moving on to the topic of, of today's show, uh, again, how to form and identify strategic partnerships that will enable your business to grow. Melithia, talk to us a little bit about just what, what is a strategic partnership? What are the, you know, how can a benefit biz, business, excuse me, benefit from forming partnerships? Where should they seek partnerships? throughout their business. So we'll start talking about this in the realm of strategic business partnerships since we're focusing on businesses as our audience. And a strategic business partnership occurs when two non-competing businesses agree to leverage their complementary strengths for mutual benefit. And one of the things to remember about this is that these businesses are independent. And this can have a tremendously positive impact on any companies looking to expedite growth. The key to a strategic partnership is really finding something of value to benefit both parties because there needs to be a mutual exchange. I always like to think of a winning strategic partnership as one that results in synergy. And speaking of synergy, I do have a fun fact for you guys today. My kids, Tegan and Livia, love fun facts. So this is going to start with a question. So I'm going to ask you, since we are always talking about synergy in our business conversations, do either of you know when and how synergy was first used in the English language? This is a pop quiz. I'm going to guess something to do with chemistry. Okay. And David, what do you guess? You know, it's always been the joke that it's one of the, that it's kind of consultant speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just going to say it was- And you're a consultant, by, uh, right? Having been a consultant from my, <laughs> my professional career, yes, I use this word all the time. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So I'm going to I'm gonna go with the consultant route. Well, synergy was actually used in the 17th century to describe the cooperation between human will and divine grace. Mm. I mean, clearly it's commonly used now in the context of mergers and acquisitions and consultant speak. But I just think it was so interesting that such a popular business buzzword really isn't deeply rooted in business at all. In fact, strategic partnerships don't have to be rooted in business either. A strategic partnership can exist between, you know, sports programs, real estate investment groups, individuals and even nations have been known to form strategic partnerships. A strategic partnership can include any independent parties that agree to cooperate and collaborate with the hopes of achieving a higher level of success together than either one of them can achieve on their own. And that's the definition of synergy that makes the partnership successful. Yeah, I mean, and and through that, you know, every external interaction you have with your business is some form of strategic partnership. Right. Maybe maybe not your relationship with your customers, because that's such a special and, and it's a, certainly a more different relationship you have. But, um, you know, your CPA firm then falls under that bucket. Um, if you have an IT vendor, I mean, heck, even the hardware providers, HP could could technically be a, 
a strategic partner. I love that definition. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many different benefits that you can derive from a strategic partnership. I call them potential benefits when I'm talking about strategic partnerships, because I do want to underscore that nothing is really guaranteed. And then all of the benefits are really different because they're determined by the unique business needs that the agreement is meant to address. So what you perceive, David and Matt, as a benefit might be completely unusual and separate from what I would perceive as a benefit for my company. But I think we should go through a list of some of the most common ones that businesses can expect to or look to achieve. Sounds great. The most popular one um, is access to new customers. And oftentimes just having complimentary products can allow you to cross promote and gain access to new customers. You'll see a lot of strategic partnerships that are focused on co-branding, mainly to increase brand awareness. And by partnering with a brand that's already stable, you can build trust in your own brand. The third one on my list of eight is expanding your geographic reach. I really love how you can partner with another company and penetrate a market that you have no current presence in whatsoever. It doesn't even have to be a domestic market. If you're here within the United States, you can really start to have an international presence, a global presence just through partnership. A fourth benefit is sharing resources. Sharing resources can be sharing capital. And it can also be sharing your human resources to fill competency gaps that can be tremendously cost saving to an organization, especially when they have perhaps a complementary line of products and they can share in research and development or share IP. The next one is leveraging new technology, research and development and intellectual property. I have a partnership right now that allows me to leverage all of the investments made in these areas. It has not only saved me a tremendous amount of time and capital, it has also allowed me to learn more about the industry and just all of the licensing and permits and rigorous testing that are involved. The sixth one on my list is gaining a new functional and industry expertise, which is something that I just hinted to when talking about my own partnership. You can develop new product lines and revenue channels. And the very last benefit, which is the ultimate benefit for everything here, is just increasing your revenue. And where does, you know, just just general networking fall in, in this list? I mean, it, you may not necessarily decide to form a partnership. It may not be the right fit for your business for one reason or another. But, but how have you seen as you go out and seek these partnerships? It, it helps just build a broader network that may have other intangible benefits down the line. Meeting you is one of the reasons that I connected <laughs> I, I, I with the that. it crowd. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. um, you know, I, I have ran an entrepreneur education group for a very long time, 1 million cups. Um, we have about 1200 or so um, participants in our community. And I just gave up my president position so that I could focus on Robin Steele. But I tell you, one of the things that we really focused on was resource connections. Anybody who's a part of the 1 million cups community now can tap into my network on LinkedIn. I'm happy to make a warm introduction for anyone. That's how I met the marketing company that we'll talk about in this podcast. Um, that's how I met you know, my finance team. That's how I met one of my attorneys. So networking is incredibly valuable and you can have partnerships or relationships with people mainly for the purposes of sharing your networks. And that is incredibly valuable and beneficial. So is it right to say, Malithia, that networking is kind of the primary way that a business owner or, or the head of a business unit can generate some of these strategic partnerships? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely one of the primary ways. You know, we can 
especially now during COVID, we can find ourselves being isolated and, you know, sitting in our offices and trying to solve problems on our own. But I think if you get out and you join some networking groups and you'll find that you know, people are typically very genuinely interested in helping each other, right? We're all on different paths, but we're all kind of joined together in achieving this common goal of success. So networking is incredibly important especially for small businesses that are looking to fill some competency gaps. And even for large businesses too, businesses who have the benefit of bringing on human resources or human capital, um, just being able to network among other executives and find out what's working right can cause you to tweak your business strategy. It can cause you to you know, think about things that you perhaps would not have thought about before. So it's not ideal to operate in a vacuum. So that makes a lot of sense, Malithia. Thank you. Um, what are the most common types of partnerships that you've seen? And um, do you have any kind of specific examples um, of successful ones that you've been able to generate uh, at Robin Steele? Uh, definitely. There's probably four or so common partnerships that I see in strategic development. And we, when I talk about these, let's keep in mind that you know, if you have a co-branding partnership, for example, it doesn't have to be limited to just co-branding. That might just be the initial trigger for the conversation. So we'll start talking about co-branding opportunities. And these are my favorite type of strategic partnerships to negotiate. I just think they're so much fun when you're working with another company and you're trying to find some creative ways to co-brand so that you can draw attention to your brand and get people talking about it. And when forming partnerships to grow, a business should seek opportunities to pair its brand with one that has a positive reputation. Look for a brand that has a large or at least a growing customer base. Co-branding relationships are free advertising. They can tremendously lower customer acquisition costs for a small business or even a large business. And I have found in my 25 plus years of negotiating that this is one of the most cost effective marketing strategies to establishing brand recognition, to reaching new customers and even entering new markets where your strategic partner is already well known. And how how does the smaller brand, for lack of a better term, the less the less well known brand, typically approach those partnership conversations? I mean, how do they how do they incentivize the larger brand? I mean, if if I ABC company want to go 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 do a deal with Microsoft, right? How do I make sure that Microsoft's incentivized? Well, Microsoft can be incentivized because you have other value that you bring to the table outside of just the strength of your brand alone. For example, I helped to negotiate, or I actually did negotiate the MSN video games channel that we did in partnership with IGN. So you guys are gamers, or at least you may have been gamers uh, back in the day. Back in the day. <laughs> and so IGN is known as the number one destination for video game news. They have expert reviews on their websites. They have walkthroughs on their websites. And any video gamer is experienced or at least knowledgeable about IGN. I used to buy all their Zelda, their Zelda video game walkthrough books. Oh, did yep. you? <laughs> so that I wouldn't break the controller when I couldn't pass a level. I just read That's up. right. Well, when Microsoft, or at least within MSN, when we decided to launch a video game channel, partnering with IGN made a lot of sense for us because it brought credibility to 
the MSN video game channel. Now, MSN is otherwise known as a stodgy kind of mature news portal, but that positive brand association with IGN gave us access to a new audience. So that was something of value to us. And then for IGN, partnering with a tech giant like Microsoft allowed them to expand their reach into millions and millions of users beyond what they could achieve on their own. So the brands don't have to be equal in strength. You should evaluate your company, be confident about what your strengths are, and know that there is something that you can provide a benefit to the other brand. And that may be outside of the box, it sounds like. I, I really like that example of, you know, maybe some of the older stodgy brands need some novelty. They do. Right. <laughs> and some of the some of the novel brands, the new brands uh, need some maybe need to leverage the credibility that comes with being around for a while. And the infrastructure and the reputation and all that. Yeah. Yeah, I have another example of that just because you mentioned the the stodginess, uh, David. We did a deal early on in my Microsoft career with Dick Clark Productions. And what do you guys think about with Dick Clark Productions? I mean, you can kind of see that image of Dick Clark in your mind, you, the rocket New Year's Eve, um, the Golden Globes. But Dick Clark alone as a brand is a little bit stodgy, right? Um, so by doing this deal with Microsoft for the Golden Globes, I think for their customer base, it provided this hint of innovation, like, hey, Dick Clark is really a mover and a shaker. He's not just rocking New Year's Eve. Um, he's in the tech world. They're partnering with Microsoft. They're shaking things up. And this might cause people to take a deeper look at their brand, perhaps be a bit more loyal to it and start talking about it. And, you know, that word of mouth advertising with your customer base is incredibly valuable. Well, that's a great example. So uh, that's the first I think the first of a, a list of four for common partnerships, what are some of the others that you see? Yeah, and I'll continue on with that too on the co-branding because I do have some other worldly examples that you know we read about and we see and we may not realize that they are co-branding opportunities. But Pottery Barn and Sherwin-Williams is one that I often talk about when I'm thinking about strategic partnerships. One, because I love Pottery Barn, but two, because they've been in partnership for a very long time. So if you ever go to their website, you can see that Pottery Barn's furniture collections and room designs are often promoted with a coordinating paint color from Sherwin-Williams. Even now, they have all of their 2021 palettes featured on both of the websites. So this strategic partnership benefits both parties because they are appealing to customers interested in home improvement. They have a complementary target audience and they have a similar psychographic profile. So they're just co-promoting their, their brands, cross-promoting their brands. Another one that I didn't think made sense years ago, and um, um, I do now because I've read case studies and I see how valuable it is, um, but that's the Eddie Bauer and Ford Union. That's probably one of the best examples of a strategic partnership with two brands, in my opinion, that have almost nothing to do with each other. So you have this very rugged apparel company and you have a car company and you're thinking, what on earth can they accomplish together? But the short story is just it's just an advertising deal. So you have the Ford vehicles with the Eddie Bauer branding. They have the premium leather seats. And then Ford also has this logo on a lot of Eddie Bauer's merchandise. And they've actually sold over one and a half million of those co-branded vehicles. So it's a partnership that works. Well, and they're both lifestyle brands, right? And they both have similar lifestyle feels to them when you start to get into the more outdoorsy four-wheel drive vehicles that Ford sells. 
Yes, they really do. And I think from reading that case study, I started to realize it. But just, you know, my initial reaction, I remember from years ago in seeing an Eddie Bauer vehicle, you know, driving down the street. I thought, what the heck does Eddie Bauer have to do um, with a car company? <laughs> but it's that psychographic profile that we sometimes overlook. Um, people, companies do find incredibly creative ways to cross promote their brands. So the next type of strategic partnership is really an integration partnership. And these are becoming so much more popular in this digital age. These partnerships are served by creative mindsets, too, especially when you have software companies and hardware companies that are coming together to find integral ways in which to blend their technologies. And one example of this that I really like is the partnership between Spotify and Uber. They developed the soundtrack for your ride campaign. Did either of you ever see that or use it? I do my best to play my own music in Ubers. Well, that's the whole thing, right? It's the soundtrack for your ride. So while you're waiting for your Uber ride, you can actually go onto your Spotify account and you can put together a playlist for your Uber ride experience. Uh, so then your ex ride experience is very personalized. It's very relevant. And that's something that businesses should be trying to achieve, especially when consumer experiences are at stake relevance and personalization. I jumped on the Spotify bandwagon last year and it's been the best thing I've done. I, I used to just try and YouTube or Google Play and nope, Spotify is the way to go. And, and they have partnerships all over the place. And yeah. Ways that I didn't even realize until I started using the platform. They are awesome at putting together strategic partnerships. So the next time, Matt, that you're waiting in line for Uber, then you'll know that you can use your new Spotify account and uh, have your playlist for your ride. I'm definitely going to have to do that. I'm going to I'm going to crush the Uber driver. <laughs> That's so right. distribution agreements, David, you asked me to continue on with some of the strategic partnership types. Distribution agreements are, are incredibly common, and I have one myself. Um, the distribution agreement that we have is probably the most critical um, among all of the strategic partnerships that I do have. I've been able to completely forego, as I mentioned earlier, all of the R&D, raw material sourcing, just product invention and innovation and everything else that's so costly when you think about manufacturing. We've actually partnered with the global leader in each one of our revenue channels. They are continuing to refine their product development and manufacturing processes, even after more than 25 years in operation. So we're so fortunate to leverage all that they invest and that mutual benefit that Robin Steele brings to the suppliers includes a very reliable and aggressive sales force. We're increasing their revenue through our sales. We're promoting their brands. We're providing product education to customers out in the field, expanding their reach. And I think the most valuable thing that we hear back from our suppliers is that we are essentially providing timely and targeted market intelligence to the suppliers. So it's outside of just a, a distribution channel for for you know you guys are not just a distribution channel for your your vendors. I mean you you are education. You listed some really important things there, and these are some good negotiating points um, for for people who are trying to set up uh, you know companies just like Robin Steele. You provide marketing for the company. Um, you provide, of course, increased revenue, but also education and brand help in the marketplace. That they those are activities that they already do and they probably do well. 
uh, but it just it, it really emboldens them and it, and it provides a whole nother avenue that they wouldn't have been able to reach before. It does. And that's part of knowing your company and knowing the strengths and the benefits that you bring to the table, because our suppliers, they're not in the fields at the micro levels in which we are. So they're able to get market intelligence that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. And that's very important to them helps them to determine how they want to diversify their product lines, what's going to be new in the pipeline for them, what improvements do they need to make. So the last common strategic partnership type that I'll mention is outsourcing. And I mentioned it, one, because I was thinking about it earlier and it's been so valuable to me. Two, I think that outsourcing is something that most companies need to consider, especially if you're small and you're in a growth phase. So you talked earlier, Matt, about, you know, tapping into, you know, finance experts or legal experts. And I just outsourced the entire business function of marketing for Robin Steele. So I'm partnering now with the id crowd. It's definitely a strategic partnership opportunity for me. They're a full service boutique firm of marketing experts. And if you look at their website, you can see that they cover every marketing discipline. So they have all of the creatives, the graphic designers, coders, website developers, etc. This is like deep functional expertise that I cannot afford to actually hire one by one. I can't have a, web, a team of website developers and a team of social media experts, but I can do that through partnership with the id crowd. Another important reason to, to go with somebody like the Icrest, I mean, you could go hire a web developer on Upwork or Fiverr, graphic design, social media management, all of those all of those activities you could find in an IC role part-time. But, you know, having somebody manage it centrally that also is aware of the entire goal that, that is not necessarily you or somebody in your business is also, I think, really important. And that's another thing that, that you know, vendor people partners, excuse me, that's another thing that partners like the account crowd bring to the table is, um, you know, that that project management to just you know when all the pieces are coming together at one time. They're excellent at the project management piece, and they've also differentiated their business by offering a business development component as well. So they are looking to help companies like Robin Steele to grow their brand. And in conversations with them, we're already thinking about ways in which Robin Steele can help to grow their brand so that we make our relationship even more strategic than one that's just paying for services. So I'm really excited about the it crowd. Love it. Glad to hear it. We've now identified what a strategic partnership is, uh, the benefits of forming one, and then some common types of partnerships that we see see out in the marketplace. I mean, how, how should a business evaluate a potential partner, right? I mean, you know, how should we evaluate CPA firm one through CPA firm B, right? I mean, what, what are the right criteria or, or a co-branding opportunity to, to help, you know, help businesses kind of narrow the, their focus? I think any business, regardless of its size, should begin by evaluating itself. You need to know and understand what strengths and resources that you have to offer to a strategic partner and understand what critical gaps you're looking to fill. And after you decide what's vitally important for your business to achieve, that should become the leading partnership goal for your agreement. The next step is evaluating the partner going through a similar exercise of identifying their strengths, identifying their weaknesses, because then you can kind of understand where your business can not only receive benefits, but also where you can provide benefits. The third thing is thinking about whether or not your business goals and your values are aligned. When we were just talking about Pottery Barn and Sherwin-Williams, they have a similar audience, right? When we talked about 
Oh, Eddie Bauer and Ford, you mentioned that they were lifestyle brands. So they have some commonalities and it's really critical to identify what those commonalities are so that you can see what things you have in common and where mutual benefits might arise. The next thing is look for signs of reliability and stability. What you don't want to do is invest a ton of time and resources into a business that may not be around for very long. And the last thing is decide if you're compatible and if you like working together. And that might seem like a very simple recommendation, especially for a gigantic corporation. But I believe it's true no matter what type of strategic partnership that you're entering and no matter what business size that you have. Strategic partnerships require creativity. They require thoughtfulness. They require problem solving and frequent communication. And you don't want any of this to be restrained by poor relations. Yeah, as we evaluate potential engagements, investments through through the family office or family office or a private equity, you know, one of the first things on our due diligence list is do we get along with the person we're going to be working with on a day to day, week to week basis, right? Um, we don't necessarily have to like each other personally, but we have to be able to communicate, right, in an effective manner. And uh, if if that doesn't happen, if that doesn't work the whole thing starts to fall apart and it'll fall apart very quickly. It does. It absolutely will. So I appreciate that you said due diligence too, because this is the due diligence process and all of these steps are very important. Yeah. And talking about due diligence, you know, as the, as the uh, lawyer of the group, I have to get into some of the little, the nitty gritty uh, details. Lawyers always want to get into the nitty gritty details. We have to get in the details because we live in the details. (laughs) Malithia, what are some of the must have terms to include in an agreement uh, or an arrangement between strategic partners? And as part of that, um, I also want to talk about, do you have to have an agreement? Or can this just be sort of an informal arrangement? Uh, but let's start with terms of, an, of a formal um, strategic partnership agreement. Well, because I'm talking to an attorney <laughs> who knows the nitty gritty, I'm going to focus on the key business terms because those are the ones that negotiators like myself typically focus on. <laughs> so I'm going to stay out of your out of your sandbox, David, and focus on my own expertise. No, no indemnification clauses. <laughs> Yeah, we don't want to talk about any of that. No (laughs) risk warranties, no identification, none of those things. Let's talk about the fun business terms. So partnership agreements, they can be incredibly complex and they don't have to be. Sometimes they can be informal agreements. And when I was mentoring entrepreneurs, I still do, but I watch a lot of them shy away from the legal agreements. They seem very daunting, very expensive, but I do think that the consequences of not having an agreement in place can even be more complex, more daunting and expensive. And speaking of informal agreements, I was reading a case study um, just a couple of weeks ago about McDonald's and Coca-Cola. I mean, that is one of the most lucrative strategic partnerships that has ever been negotiated. And it actually started with a handshake. Um, so it does happen and it can be successful. But I highly recommend, especially with attorneys ears on the lines, that you put together a legal agreement if you can. So the first term, and I have 10 here, I like to do things in groups of 10. As a negotiator, there's probably a lot more things I'd like to see people include in their partnership agreements because I've seen so much, especially 
you know, being a negotiator for Microsoft and being a negotiator for Lockheed Martin. I mean, our world is about keeping those companies out of court. There's so many potential liability issues in almost everything that we do. Microsoft is such a tremendous target for, you know, legal disputes. Um, so we learned very quickly and I'll share that just having the term clearly defined in your agreement is very important. How long do you expect to be in this relationship? And that's because there's mutual benefits, right? So you want to make sure that when you have mutual benefits that you understand how long you are expected to actually deliver in this relationship. But you also want to give that agreement time to bring your mutual goals to fruition. So you don't want it to end too quickly. The second thing is termination rights. What happens if we don't play well together within six months or within a year? How do we get out of this relationship? Perhaps we've been very successful and now my company is a target for acquisition. How do I get out of this relationship? So understand how you can bring that relationship to closure. Are there mutual termination rights? Is there some other sort of trigger? Just make sure that you clearly define that going in. The next thing is intellectual property ownership. You know, I specialize in licensing intellectual property. That's what I did for 15 years at Microsoft. I've licensed it in, I've licensed it out. And I know that when you come together in these strategic partnerships, we are sharing our product development plans. We are sharing our roadmaps. We are allowing other companies, third parties to use our marks for co-branding initiatives and other things. So we need to be clear that we maintain ownership of the intellectual property that we bring to the table. This is incredibly important for both parties. Number four on my list is confidentiality. First, Start with a non-disclosure agreement before you even start talking about your partnership agreement. But once you are into the partnership agreement, make sure that you are protecting all of the information about your IP, about your plans. You don't want your competitive analysis or anything else that you're generating and sharing with your partner to fall into the wrong hands. The fifth thing is content guidelines for co-branding. And I mentioned that one because the co-branding partnerships, again, are among the most popular ones for strategic partnerships, but only by having co-branding guidelines within your agreement can you maintain the integrity of your brand. And I'll give you a couple of examples. When I was negotiating for Microsoft, one of the deals that drove me batty when was negotiating with JK Rowling uh, for the Harry Potter series. We were doing a book related event and she was really hung up on having her brand in close proximity to McDonald's brand, which Microsoft didn't have McDonald's on its network anyway, but just the thought of having her brand next to the McDonald's brand was something that she wanted specific language in the contract to avoid. And I couldn't assure her, David, even in informal conversation, I could not assure her business leadership team that we don't even sell advertising to McDonald's. She wanted it documented and that was actually a very important thing. So when you're thinking about content guidelines, it's not just the color treatment. It's not just even being in close proximity to another brand that you don't want to be in close proximity to. It could be being close to hate speech or other things that could damage the integrity of your brand. So make sure that you are informing your partners how you want your brand to be presented and who is going to be presented to. I have a feeling that McDonald's story came from a bad partnership. 
that J.K. Rowling had? Uh, it may have. <laughs> I didn't have any sort of history on it. I kept thinking, does she just not like McDonald's? I don't know why <laughs> this is, of all the advertisers that MSN can have on its network, McDonald's was the tremendous hangup. Burger King's okay, but no McDonald's. Perhaps Burger King, Sonic, those are all okay, but no McDonald's. This next thing on my list is number six, and it's probably the most important. And that is a very specific description of the intended value exchange. This is just describing what the agreement is meant to do. What are we trying to accomplish by working together? What am I bringing? What are you bringing? So number seven, if they're relevant are performance obligations, duties and deliverables. On number eight, I put the anticipated targets and performance metrics. This one's very important to me, especially having come from MSN. Now, MSN is a metrics-driven business. We're looking at time spent, page views, engagement. So it's not enough in a strategic partnership to have the goal to simply be to increase your unique users. Increase alone is not meaningful and it's not measurable. So it's very important to put some performance metrics within your business agreement. Even if you don't know specifically what they are, just know what's going to be a meaningful contribution. I don't want to go into a business agreement and have 4,000 users and I partner with you and suddenly I have 4,016 because 16 is not meaningful. The next to the last one is approval process. This can be... <laughs> This can take us back to number two on termination rights. If you don't understand who approves what and Uber and Spotify, Spotify could say, hey, this is great. This is our music platform. These are our jams. This is wonderful. Our customers love it. But Uber might come back and say, this is not the type of experience that we want for our for our riders. So who really gets to make the final call? You might be able to agree to something now while relations are good, but always plan for hopefully the unlikely event of things going bad. So document that. And the very last thing, David, on the business terms that I think is important is a dispute resolution process. Because if we don't have a dispute resolution process that perhaps might be critical because we don't have the right approval process, everything takes us back to termination. And we just need to be crystal clear, all companies do, large or small, on how do we manage a dispute because disputes will arise. Well, and Malithia, this is uh, remarkable. I, I, I have no, as somebody that does this on a regular basis um, uh, for clients, I have literally nothing to add to those buckets. Uh, and I'm, that's just so impressive. It's clear you've been doing this for a long time. These are all must-haves. There's some legalese that has to be in every kind of strategic partnership agreement. But uh, in terms of the business terms and the way that the relationship flows, and I love the discussion about values, this is perfect. Uh, I did want to add one thing to the approval process between strategic partners. You're exactly right that the, the strategic partners need to allocate between themselves as to the approval process and how decisions are going to be made and, and uh, you know, on terms as the relationship progresses. But I did want to add where I thought you were going was uh, both of the strategic partners need to have confidence that they are dealing with counterparties and representatives on either side that have the authority to make all the decisions and to move the relationship forward. So the, uh, and that involves having the organization, you know, right back to where, what we were talking about at the beginning, have the organization empower 
those representatives to do everything ne necessary to consummate and move that relationship forward. And the, your strategic partners have to have that confidence. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is, that's tremendously important. And I probably should have mentioned that when we were talking about Microsoft and I was talking about my mentors and how they empowered us and brought visibility to each one of us and our accomplishments, um, they put us in the position of being decision makers. And I can't tell you how many times I was negotiating an agreement with somebody who I later found out wasn't a decision maker. They didn't have the authority to close a deal and we would spend mm -hmm. weeks or even months just, you know, <laughs> negotiating terms and then ultimately find out that the ultimate decision maker wasn't even on board with the agreement or wanted something significantly changed. And then you're back to square one. We're back to square one and perhaps we're using outside counsel and now we got a tremendous legal bill that we need to pay because we're essentially starting all over again. So do make sure in your strategic partnerships to David's point that you are you have a dedicated kind of executive sponsor or decision maker assigned to your deal making. Well, great. Thank you for that, uh, Malithia. That's just tremendous. And that concludes the bulk of our conversation today. But before we wrap up, I want now we'll move on to the rapid fire question section. We'll ask every guest the same five questions and they only have a short time to answer. So Malithia, are you ready? I am ready. Love it. What is the one habit that most contributes to your success? The one habit that probably contributes to my success is just trying to build a personal connection with practically everybody I work with. I think that this is a soft skill. I'm kind of born with it, but it's really critical for good negotiators, for account managers and people managers too. Gotta be high on that EQ. Dinner with three people, dead or alive. Well, family is number one in my life. So I'm gonna start with family members. So my first one would be my maternal grandmother, Nancy Campbell. I say that because she did what we considered back then a lot of odd jobs like styling hair or cooking for people, et cetera. But what I really didn't realize is that she was the first entrepreneur in my life and the currency that she was really gaining from all of those jobs was time. And that was a very inspirational thing for me. So I just like to have dinner with her and be able to share with her how much she inspired me to be an entrepreneur and run my own business like she did. Love that. The second person will be my grandfather, her husband, Obi Campbell Sr. Um, I miss both of them tremendously. And what I loved about my grandfather who passed away when I was eight or nine years old is that he was always calm, no matter what the gravity of the events were around him, he was able to maintain his composure. Like I've never seen him worried. I never heard him shout profanities or even say profanity. I never saw him get angry at anybody. He didn't belittle people or degrade them. He didn't break people down. He was just calm in all situations. And I appreciate that he found a way not to allow other people's emotions to control his emotions. And I got to tell you, Matt, right now with so many awful things happening in this world, the pandemic, the hate crimes, mass shootings, etc., it can weigh you down. Um, I have an emotional reaction to that. It causes me to worry about the future for my kids. So being in his presence, I think would give me confidence that everything is going to be okay because I could mirror his calmness. I love that. So the last person for me is going to be Michelle Obama. <laughs> she is uh, just a tremendous icon and role model, I think, for women. I have so much admiration for her. Um, being married to Barack Obama didn't overshadow her accomplishments in any way. I mean, she 
um, was able to stand on her own. Nobody in politics has been able to find any significant flaws in her accomplishments. And I just think she's sharp. You know, she's sharp in her presentation of herself, graduating from Princeton and Harvard. She's an attorney. She's an author. The list just goes on the list of accomplishments that she has. But one of the things that I really like about her is that she's an advocate for a lot of family related issues that I believe in. And I heard her once say that we have an obligation to fight for the world as it should be. And because we have a joint passion for helping children, I'd like to have dinner with her and just ask Michelle Obama, how do you think I can give back and be most effective in doing so? Where can I make the greatest impact for our youth? Well, Barack Obama is one of those minds that always wants to meet his equal. And you can tell that Michelle Obama is his equal, if not better, I'm sure. I'm sure Barack would say that she's better. She's better on the fashion, for sure. <laughs> she's definitely more fashionable, <laughs> yes. So if you had $1 million to invest anywhere, where would it be? Well, $1 million today, where would I invest it? I'm already an investor in the XR Sports Group. This is an esports company. I think that they have tremendous potential to accomplish great things. So I would make another substantial investment in XR Sports Group. One, I believe in the industry. It's growing by leaps and bounds. I think that we're expecting to see about a billion dollars in revenue for the esports industry this calendar year. And audiences are growing about 9% year over year. Um, I'd invest in it because of the industry potential and I'd invest in it because of the owner. He's become well known in DFW as a video game entrepreneur. His name is Kedrian Cole and I believe in him. And you know, when you make investments as your company does, you're investing in the people as much as you're investing in the product or service. And it goes well, I think, with some of the skills that you gained while at, while at Microsoft. So what is the top skill you look for in your team? Well, my team is a little bit different. My team is a little bit different because they're mostly made up of independent contractors. Mm -hmm. And except for my full-time husband, Brian Tuggle, um, he's the only one who's like committed <laughs> to me day to day. So working with an independent contractor really requires a different management technique and a lot of trust. So I look for two things, teamwork skills, um, these guys need to be able to, you know, manage themselves and work together. They're not technically part of a team, but we are working towards um, a joint goal. So they have to function like a team. So collaboration and professional communication are essential. And the second thing, Matt, is just time management or I should say self-management. You know, when you're dealing with independent contractors, you can't provide the same incentives or um, even disciplines to them in the way that you would a full time employee. It's a really fine line for business owners to walk on what's legally acceptable, as David would know, for workplace treatment for an independent contractor. Mm -hmm. What are your competitors greatest opportunities? Without a doubt, their greatest opportunity is gaining a first mover advantage in markets that we're not in, for sure. It is, uh, it's hard to establish a foothold and, and once you have it, it's, uh, it's everything to defend it. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have one more thing to add though, because we were talking rapid fire. So I'm having to think really quickly on my feet, but going back to investments, I would absolutely invest in my own company too. So that's something that I don't <laughs> want to not mention because I believe in Robin Steele, right? That's why I'm here. And um, I would definitely um, invest in two more salespeople to help us grow and enter some new markets. I'd probably invest in real estate too. I'm, I'm always thinking about investments. So you picked the wrong question for me for rapid fire. I have a lot of ideas. There's no ban on shameless self-promotion <laughs> in this question. That's right. 
Well, Malithia, thank you. Uh, Matt and I were thrilled to uh, have a wonderful conversation today with Malithia Campbell-Tuggle, owner and president of Robin Steele. Uh, she has tremendous experience negotiating strategic partnerships, and we got to hear about some of that experience, some excellent case studies and examples on some of the lessons that she's learned, and then uh, basically a treatise on how to identify, negotiate, and start strategic partnerships with your business. So thank you, Malithia. Thank you both for having me. It's great to have you on. And if you like what you heard here, visit growthtoexit.com or shieldslegal.com for more information. And make sure to follow us on all of our social media channels for relevant business content. Additionally, visit robinsteel.com to learn how they help with pedestrian safety throughout all of our cities. And if you want a case study and a great example of a strategic partnership, check out The It Crowd, an innovative marketing partner who Robin Steele now works with. These successful partnerships deserve recognition all the time. Thank you again, Malithia, for coming on. You're welcome. You guys have a wonderful day. Thanks.